I'm Emily Renneberg, and this is Even Strength. Happy New Year! We're going to keep the 2022 greeting short and sweet. I hope everyone is staying well. Before we start this episode, I want to thank all of you, all of my listeners, for dedicating some of your time to listen to the show, for the extra support as we continue making the content that we know the sports world needs. I saw that some of you had even strength as one of your top 2021 podcasts, and I so appreciate every single one of you. It's become a lot more challenging to publish these episodes consistently, so again, thank you for your support, for your patience, and also for passing on your favorites to your friends. Today, we're talking sports marketing, which is kind of an all-encompassing term for a lot of different things within sports, marketing, advertising. It's a lot. So, let's start by taking a history lesson. Back in the 1930s, the brand Wheaties famously began to print prominent athletes, like baseball players, onto their cereal boxes in order to promote their breakfast of champions. This was considered sports marketing. In the mid-50s, the first stadium sold its naming rights to boost team revenues. It was met with some mixed reactions, but it was also considered sports marketing, and it's still very, very common today. Rest in peace, Staples Center. That same year, they launched Sports Illustrated, which, again, is a totally different medium than naming a building. But it's also sports marketing. Massive stadium screens, which we now know as jumbotrons, started popping up in the 80s and became one of the more common mediums for sponsorships across North American sport. And again, we see that a lot today. The mid-80s also gave us the first publicly available pair of... Money's gotta be the shoes! 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 You sure it's not the shoes? I'm sure, Mars. What about the shoes? No, Mars. Money's gotta be the shoes! Air Jordans, which totally revolutionized the shoe industry, the perception of basketball in the NBA, and defined another important piece of sports marketing, an athlete endorsement. Let's take a guess on how much you think Michael Jordan made on that contract. Did you guess $1 billion? Because I certainly didn't. That's how much he's made from that contract to date. And Nike won't give us their actual numbers on how well they've done, but we can imagine they've done pretty well with that groundbreaking deal. All of this is to say that sports marketing takes on numerous forms and it will continue to change and evolve drastically. During the pandemic alone, sports marketing has taken on an entirely new role and creatives have had to rethink their entire approach to keep people engaged, to pull in new fans, and honestly, in many cases, keep their teams and organizations afloat while the world struggles with COVID. The topic is so interesting and dynamic that I knew I needed to bring in an expert to help us understand the historical trends, current climate, and where we're headed. Our wonderful guest graciously took time out of her beyond busy schedule to give us the good stuff. Hey, my name is Marion AJ Jamara, and I'm a sports management professional and entrepreneur. I have a master's degree in sport management and have been working in sports for over five years. I'm passionate about helping others discover their own passions and giving them the tools they need to succeed. I also love sports, sharing unique stories, and fostering diversity in different spaces. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. So Marion graduated her undergrad with a degree in political science, thinking she'd then go to law school and become a sports agent. 
Things changed a bit there, and she decided to pivot her sports dream just a tiny bit and go back to school. For as long as I can remember, like wanting to work in sport, being passionate about sports, but particularly being passionate about working with athletes. So I remember growing up, like one of the main sports jobs that I really knew and could recognize was being a sports agent. I remember getting into a political science program and I had always been interested in policy in general as well. So to me, it felt like I would still be learning about a topic that I was interested in, but it would eventually allow me to transition to a career in sport. But I was really intentional about making sure that I was still keeping a connection to sports. So did an internship when I was in my first year of university with a basketball company. I was also a varsity track and field athlete at the time. So was able to stay connected in sport that way. And then over the next few years in undergrad, I actually worked for the men's football team and the women's hockey team um, as an equipment manager. So I was always trying to kind of find ways to stay connected to sport. When I got to like my third or fourth year, I woke up one day and was kind of like, I don't know if I want to be a sports agent anymore, but I know I'm still passionate about working in sports. So what are my options? Did a little bit of research, found out that there was a wide variety of careers available. Found a program at Western University uh, where they had a, a nice degree in sport management. Marion's explored and worked in a few different areas of sport before landing in some super solid marketing and management positions and even starting her own brand consulting business. Although some of these skills came naturally to her, it would be a huge mistake to underestimate the power of extremely hard work, her curiosity for learning, and passion for sports. I was kind of expanding my horizons and was just kind of interested in working in a, in a space that would allow me to be strategic, but also be creative. And so sports marketing was kind of where my vision and goals were aligning. And so I was kind of developing my own creative graphic design, like marketing skills on my own. I had taken Photoshop in high school, but over the, the last few years was teaching myself on how to kind of improve in there, really refining that skill. Video editing was something that I taught myself. Again, doing my master's, there was a lot of communication pieces, a lot of essay writing. So I was able to improve those communication skills. But I also did a lot of volunteering work with my local church, um, where I was able to help out with a lot of their social media, marketing pieces and communication pieces. So in spaces that weren't necessarily in sport, I was really able to kind of build up a lot of these transferable skills and they really helped me kind of thrive. I think when I was probably like 26, I decided I wanted to start my own kind of like business and I knew marketing and social media were things that I was good at. And so I started like a marketing agency kind of thing, like freelance, uh, where I was helping small business owners really kind of establish their brands from a creative standpoint. And that really gave me a lot of a ton of experience. Even if you've never associated with sports in your life, which if that's true and you're still listening to this podcast, thank you. And I appreciate you a little bit extra. You've likely heard a lot of anecdotes saying that being an athlete gives you a ton of skills to bring to the workforce and that employers love hiring athletes. Sports will teach teamwork, patience, punctuality, leadership, and a bunch of other traits that are very valuable in work life. But a lot of these anecdotes are actually just that. They're stories and assumptions. Fortunately, some academic research has finally provided some evidence and clarity for these ideas. Student-athletes significantly outperform their non-athlete peers when it comes to transformational leadership, which basically just means managing themselves and managing others. In our entrepreneurship episode with Nicole, we talked a lot about how numerous studies show the volume of women in leadership who've played sports and the success found by female entrepreneurs who also identify as athletes. So, if you haven't heard that episode, go check it out once you're done this one. Once you've finished listening to this one, please don't leave us here yet. 
Being an athlete herself, I wondered if Marion felt like she had an edge working in the industry. Her answer kind of surprised me. Not at all. And I don't know if it's because of when I ended, when I stopped playing sport. I think just, I, I think the only edge that I would say is that sometimes I feel like I understand the voice of the athletes. If you ask me what I'm passionate about, I'm going to say sport, but it's because I love athletes. Like I so badly want them to be advocated for. I want them to be able to utilize their voice. And so sometimes I feel like when things are happening, I can come from, I can see what their perspective would be. And one of the main reasons why I always wanted to work in sport was solely because of the athletes for a very long time. Again, I was a, a varsity uh, track and field athlete in university. And so I identified with this athlete like characteristic and identity so strongly. And I remember being in school and seeing how important that identity piece was to so many of the student athletes that we were with. And to get to be part of a space where you get to share the stories of these people or get to support them in a new way, like to me, that is, that is amazing. Like for the longest time, athletes were viewed as just that people who showed up on the court or on the ice or on the field, played their sport, had no voice, had no identity other than the one that fans were constructing for them or the media was constructing for them. But I think sports marketing has created this like new avenue for us to get to know athletes a little bit better. And I think it also shapes the sport narrative. Think about LeBron James. He's my favorite athlete. So LeBron James maybe gets a, a brand deal with Nike. And the whole a customer journey for him is that he was a kid who grew up and couldn't afford a pair of Nikes. And now he is living in this time and space where he can get all the Nikes he wants. You know, just do it. You can do whatever you want, right? For the longest time, you never got to hear that directly from an athlete like LeBron James's mouth. With sports marketing, LeBron James gets to share that narrative through the Nike brand. You don't want to be LeBron James. I can't inspire you. Impress you. Make you believe. That I am just one man. But he also gets to own that on his social media channels. And then the teams that he plays for, so the Lakers or Cleveland, they also get to carry that narrative in any which way they want to shape it. So it's maybe it's the just do it narrative, or maybe if they establish a narrative for the season that we're going to get it done, it all kind of falls in line with this storytelling piece towards the athlete. One of the first jobs or things that I did was actually going to a development camp for our AAA athletes because I wanted to be able to um, showcase a side of them that people weren't seeing, right? I wanted people to be able to see the training piece. I wanted people to be able to see and understand who these athletes were. We did interviews with them. We had their actual faces showcased on our social media platform because I think once you get to know the athlete, you're invested in their game that much more. And I think that's what sports marketing has always been for me. And I think the, the place in which it sits in right now is just, it's so big. It's amazing. Endorsements have become a very normalized revenue stream for a lot of athletes. And in more cases than you'd probably think, endorsements provide the majority of an athlete's income. So Usain Bolt made over $24 million off the track. How much do you think he made on the track? $200,000. That's it. You want to go to a bar? Well, Usain Bolt is pointing right there. Michelob Ultra. Superior light beer. Naomi Osaka became the highest paid female athlete in history this year by shattering her own record last year and earned $55 million in endorsements in 2021. She made $5 million from playing tennis. Insane. Athletes are often perceived as synonymous to the brand that they're endorsing. Michael Jordan and Nike comes up again as a great example of this. So does LeBron James and Nike. Or Tiger Woods and Nike. 
Golf's not hard with Tiger Woods and the Airzoo TW. Today, basic tips on hitting the 300-yard fairway bunker shot. First, hit them all 300 yards. Nike spends over $6 billion a year in athlete endorsements, by the way. So you'd be reasonable to think that this advertising stuff probably works. But that also brings up a question. Is the athlete selling a product or is the athlete the product? Because look at Gaga. She's the creative director of Polaroid. I like some of the Gaga songs. What the f*** does she know about cameras? So think about influencers, right? Yes, a lot of their lives results in them promoting products, promoting ads. But I think where the athlete branding piece is now going is not so much so the athlete being a product itself, but being a brand voice, right? I'm not looking at LeBron James as somebody who I want to own a piece of. I'm looking at LeBron James as somebody who I, I need to advocate for a product that I want to buy, right? And that's how I feel about influencers. If I go on your page and you're promoting Dove Soap, because I trust in your voice, I'm going to buy the Dove Soap. I'm not looking to buy a piece of you, but I'm looking to buy a piece of something that you're advocating for. And I think that because athletes now have this brand voice, like, again, the influencer piece, like we just, we value what it is they're saying. We value who it is they are. And so we value what it is they're willing to promote. The CCM one-piece boot. The CCM one-piece boot. If I had these in my day, I could have been Connor McDavid. I'm not looking at athletes as products in the in the sense outside of like the endorsements. Maybe for the organizations they work for, of course. Like to a certain extent, when it comes to their own brand deals and their ability to kind of control their own narratives, I view them as more of like a brand voice as opposed to them being an actual product. If I'm an athlete and I want to sponsor a particular beverage. I have the choice to say I want to sponsor this beverage. If I'm an athlete and I want to promote a particular product, I get the autonomy and the say to be able to promote that. Whereas in certain cases, you don't have that willingness. You don't have that power, right? You go to a school, they're wearing a particular uh, brand. They want you to look a particular way and you have to adhere to that. Whereas this like new space where athletes get to be the voice and get to be a true genuine voice for products and services that they genuinely like, to me, is completely different than anything that we've seen before. The WNBA has been a shining example of how allowing athletes to create their brand and own their own message helps find success and leadership opportunities amongst professional sports leagues. From signing a historical collective bargaining agreement to pay their players a more reasonable salary and raise their cap, to offer full maternity leave and introduce in-season cup games, their league-wide responses to Black Lives Matter, Say Her Name, anti-Asian violence, and other social justice efforts, to have their iconic bright orange sweatshirt named the best fashion statement of the year by the Sports Business Journal, the WNBA is the one to watch right now, especially for sports marketing. People love to hear stories or get to know what favorite female athletes are interested in or women athletes are interested in. And I think that has lended a whole lot of success to like the success of leagues that we've seen, such as the WNBA. The rebrand that the league did in their ability to showcase athletes, to promote athletes, to allow athletes to have a voice has completely changed the way in which people consume the WNBA and completely changed the way in which people even view these WNBA players, right? I think for the longest time, I've, I've always been tapped into the league, but unless you were actually invested in the game, you, you weren't really aware of who these people were. But now... You come out on the forefront and you're seeing WNBA players and you're seeing their names on screens and they're also getting to work their ways in different parts of sport, in different parts of business, in different parts of fashion. You know what? The reality of the situation is whether you are a men's league, women's league, 
like mixed league, you're eventually going to have to promote the brand of athletes in order to get the buy-in for people. And so I don't think we could ever live in a time and space where you just rely solely on the identity of an organization to uphold your league. People want to see the promotion and the success and the stories of their athletes. I think it's extremely important in particular in women's sports, just because oftentimes the way in which media portrays things and the way in which a lot of like just crazy people on the internet portray things is that there's this lack of interest in women's sport. And so the reality is, how do you get people to buy in by creating common connections? But I know there's a player that plays for the Connecticut Sun, and maybe she has a similar story and journey as mine. I'm invested. Like I even think for myself, always lived in, in, in Toronto, always been a fan of the home team. But my interest in the, in the team really heightened when Masai Ujiri became the GM. And that is because he is African. My parents were born in Ghana. I'm a Ghanaian Canadian. And to be able to see somebody in that space that had a similar story to my parents and to me created that connection piece. And so I became a little bit more invested in the Toronto Raptors. The same way a young girl who lives in Brooklyn sees a WNBA player like Sabrina who plays for New York and feels like she wants to be exactly like her. She's going to be tapped into our identity, right? If she gets to see Sabrina everywhere in Nike ads or when she's driving by the street in Brooklyn, she's tapped into her story. She wants to get to know more about her. And in turn, that will make her invested. That will create an investment in the New York Liberty and then in the league and then in women's sport in general. Male sports kind of have this head start because people just give them the benefit of the doubt, but they're going to get to a point where there's going to be so many competing factors that they're going to have to start really tapping into the personalities of their actual athletes. But let's take it back to Marion's story. Like we talked about earlier, she's held a lot of different roles across different sports, but in her words, the most rewarding opportunity so far was helping to build the Black Female Coach Mentorship Program. I've been working in sport now for a very long time. And uh, for your viewers listening, obviously, none of you can see me, but I am a Black woman. And so for me, I think another reason why I love sport so much was the representation piece. I would see athletes that looked like me, that had similar stories as me. I could really connect that way. And it was weird because then I got into sport management and started working actual like sports management marketing jobs and nobody looked like me. I was always the exception to the rule. I was always like the odd one out in all of the spaces that I was in. For me, like being in spaces where I feel like everybody is kind of represented um, has, has been really important for me. And when uh, the Black Canadian Coaches Association established this mentorship program, I was over the moon. Because another thing that I noticed was that you don't often see a lot of one Black coaches in collegiate sport or in professional sport outside of the States. But two, you don't see a lot of Black women. And to me, that was mind boggling. It was it was very disheartening, especially because I know so many amazing black female athletes who are killing it every day and are not getting the opportunities they deserve to lead. I came on literally when the program was being put together. And again, I love working in sport, but to know that I was working with women who like when they shared their stories, there would be coaches who would tell you that they've been working in a sports space for so long, but there have been times where they were not getting opportunities simply because of what they look like. And for them to be able to be in a safe space where they were being championed and supported and being encouraged to grow, like they just felt like that was the biggest achievement ever. And to know that I had a hand in that, to me, was it was the most fulfilling thing that I've done in a very long time. And I think it was also a reminder, like we're living in a really interesting space right now where everybody wants to make a dollar and a dream off of like every idea, every concept, every thought. 
And I think things like mentorship have even become commodified. But I've always viewed mentorship as this really like organic, authentic thing. And I really got to see that with the Black Female Coach Mentorship Program, where there were these women who were genuinely passionate about bringing others along for the ride and setting them up for success to me. It was amazing. So one of my favorite parts about doing this podcast is being able to talk to the smartest people about their past and their knowledge. And you can literally feel the energy and the passion through the calls. So before we jumped off, I had to ask a few extra questions about working in the industry. The first being, where do you see the future of sports marketing? I I think there's too much money in sports marketing, first of all. Money money moves the dial everywhere. I think a lot of sports leagues and a lot of sports are going to get to a point where they realize the way in which they can really get the investment and the marketing dollars is when people can see their athletes for more than just what they do on a court or, again, a field. I think culture plays a big part in a lot of things, right? Eventually, things culture softens its tone. The NBA actually enforced a dress code policy. I think it was in the early 1990s. It had a lot to do with outward perceptions of athletes. Specifically, athletes in this league where a majority of them were Black. So a lot of people were viewing the way in which athletes were dressing, like an underlying racial connotation. So like they were viewing them as thugs or not professional. And then you also start to see that athletes or basketball players in particular become people who start to set fashion trends. Like never in my life did I think NBA players were going to be invited to Fashion Week in Paris, but Jordan Brand did an entire showcase. And so I think in any professional sports league, once they start to see where consumer dollars are willing to be invested, I think eventually culture will shift. The second question, what's the best thing and the least best thing about working in sports? So if you work in the community side of sport, this is one thing that they don't tell you, there's no money. You're going to be working long hours for little to no money. The the pay scale definitely pales in comparison to what you see in the professional sports side. Um, so that's the one thing that kind of burdens me. You see a lot of people saying, hey, like, I've loved working in sports, but it's literally just not financially feasible. So I'm moving into tech or I'm moving into go work with a big business because I just literally cannot afford to keep working in this space. And then sometimes people not recognizing the work that you're doing, right? Like um, there are real people that are helping keep a lot of these organizations together. I think it's extremely important for people to recognize not just in the moments of visibility, not just when when you can see a post on social media or when you see something come all together, but in the moments where the executive director is responding to your email at 2 a.m. about a concern that you have or finding solutions for maybe an issue that you found within uh, your sport. I think people need to recognize other people that are doing the good work, even in, in a professional sports setting, like a professional sporting event. There are so many moving parts in game production, the people that make the social media graphics, brand, digital sponsorships and partnerships, the people that even put the towels down for you to pick up and cheer with when you come into a game, the ticketing people, all of these people are a part of this grand show and sporting event that you get to be a part of. And I think oftentimes they're unsung heroes and, and they don't get the respect and appreciation that they deserve. The, the most rewarding is always going to be when I know the people that I'm, I've been hired to or committed to serve feel like the outcome is good enough for them. For me, that's always going to be fulfilling when I feel like the people that we are working to help make sport available to or accessible for, um, or even the communities that I'm serving feel like there's a sense of fulfillment. Thank you again to Marianne for joining us today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Spotify now has the option for you to rate and review podcasts. If you like this episode, if you like this podcast and you have a second, please rate and review on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Helps me out a lot. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Even Strength Pod, 
You can find updates there on episodes and some sports news. Other than that, wishing you a happy and healthy 2022. See you next time.